Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 476 is recorded live December 17th, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Chilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where that holiday season is almost upon us. I hate to even think of how few shopping days we have left. Joining us this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. So, uh, kind of a, a light chat room tonight. We have Dave. And nobody else. Everybody must be. Uh, I would blame holiday parties, but considering the se- the year we've had, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of those. Maybe virtual. How do you do a virtual holiday party? Just send everybody uh, a flask and then say go to it. You can send me one if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article we have up is five foreign scuba divers rescued by uh in the sea by the San Chiles. Um the divers were from UK, South Africa, and Russia were rescued in the Sea of San Chiles on Sunday after six hours in the water. They've been released on from the hospital after routine routine medical checkup. Rescue operation was launched after a report with the Coast Guard late Sunday afternoon and five divers had not been sighted in the location they're supposed to have resurfaced. Three of the divers were from the UK. Captain Johan Valmont, uh, chief executive of San Chile's Maritime Safety Authority, told SNA that local authorities had the debriefing with the divers on Monday morning to find out what happened. They told us that six of them went uh, left to go diving as part of their leisure activity. One stayed in the boat and the other five went diving. They said within 20 minutes they found out there were strong currents and the water was not clear enough for them to see below, so they resurfaced. When they got to the surface, they could not find the boat that was supposed to be on standby. The standby boat had drifted uh, with the current, but the person on board waited for 45 minutes, and we did not see the divers return. He called the representative who informed the Coast Guard. From then on, a rescue operation was launched. The rescue operation, uh, which was coordinated by San Chile's Coast Guard, included Maritime Rescue Coordination Center, the San Chile's Maritime Safety Authority, National Information Sharing, and Coordination Center with the assistance of two helicopters from Zill Air Company. Five divers who spent about six hours at sea were found in the vicinity of the Mamales Island, which is, uh, lies about 14 kilometers north of Mehi, the main island. Uh, Valmont warned divers that irrespective of the size the boat was, it's important they inform authorities when they're going out to sea. If we had known, we would have not had to use all the resources for the rescue operation. In the briefing, we also informed them that the cost incurred which are in a difficult economic situation with COVID-19 pandemic, and we don't have the budget for such operations, they agreed to bear certain costs. He took the opportunity to reiterate the irrespective of where you're going out in a small or big craft. It's important to notify the authorities where you're going out to sea. Now it is very simple. If you're going to go on a day trip, 
You don't have to fill out a form. You simply provide the information on the boat, which direction you are heading, and the number of people on board. Is that normal operations, Mac? I'm not. I'm not sure. Is that Europeans? I just have not a clue. But I haven't done a boat tour or boat mm -hmm. dive other than people I know. Yeah. But but they're making in it sound years and like years that, and years. That you know any I boat going. I remember out. back in the mid seventies. Yeah, for there it may have but been the, required. But it sounded like the boat called in. So couldn't they have asked him where he was? I don't know. Yeah, okay. Uh, so. Yeah, I just wonder, they... is, that, is that picture representative of them finding them? So they really did have that safety sausage out there in the middle of that? Yeah, so the divers who had spent six hours... The photos was credited the People's Defense Forces Facebook, so we don't know. There's, it's not a guarantee that's an actual photo from that or just maybe some other training or something. But yeah, if they if did, you, you didn't, didn't see. That, yeah, if you didn't see that little piece of red, mm -hmm. and he wasn't waving, you wouldn't see him. He blends in. Well, and it depends how long it takes him to find him. You know, know, the, know that he was gone. If it's a little darker and you don't have anything that's visible that's lit. And they don't say how far out were they, did they? Uh, well, he just said 14 miles from somewhere, but that didn't necessarily mean 14 kilometers offshore. Yeah. But, you know, as we get a little older, a mile offshore is a long way. Oh, yeah. yeah and you have to hope that the current's bringing you in, because that current can take you pretty much wherever it wants. If, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm I'm not going to outswim most currents. And then we have oil coming I, from. Go ahead. I was I don't even think I would try because no, you don't want to get yourself out there and then get exhausted. Well, the best thing, and we we have seen uh, uh, exceptions to the case, but uh, with four divers stay together, make a bigger target to be found. If you got the safety sausage, just put them up. You know. That's where an EPIRP would, would kind of be nice. Yeah. Be able to send a signal, which would have a GPS coordinate, and then they could come and pick you up. Absolutely. Oil coming from several spots in a 1968 shipwreck in the uh, Nukuka. That was at Nutka Sound? Nutka. Um. Inspections by remote operated vehicle discovered that oil is leaking out of several locations in a cargo ship, which sank off Vancouver Island, West Coast in 1968. The oil floating on the surface is heading south and southeast. Kira Westnidge, one of the Canadian Coast Guard's incidents command posts, said Monday, this is confirmed by visual observation and tracking buoys. The size and spread of the direction of the spill has been very consistent to date at 30 to 50 liters. In early January 1968, the 483-foot cargo ship, MV Schleideck, uh, sank yeah. in Bly Island in Nootka Sound after hitting an underwater shelf. All crew escaped, and the captain stayed on board the Holland America line ship until about 10 minutes before it sank. The Daily Colonist newspaper article from that time stated, Oil leaked during the sinking has been coming to the surface again in recent days. The bloom was put in the water to collect fuel from the government officials trying to understand what is happening. Pollution cleanup has been going on since December 6th. Protection booms have been set up around sensitive areas and cultural sites. 
oil samples been sent to for analysis. This will give us better understanding of the chemical characteristics of specific type of oil upwelling. Historical documents say the ship is carrying diesel and bunker fuel. About 40 people are at the site with a variety of equipment from booms to vessels to skimming equipment. Observations show oil is heading to the surface rather than settling in the seabed. There is a continuous but slow discharge of oil pollution emanating from the MV Schleich, Westnidge said. It's not clear how much oil is on the ship when it grounded. The remote vehicles used to search the, reach the ship, which is 360 to 400 feet below the surface. An evaluation impact to marine wildlife is underway. Results should be available in a few days. Uh, Stephanie Hewson, a lawyer with a nonprofit West Coast Environmental Law Organization, said one concern is that there is a marine park in the area and the oil is inside that park. Holland America representatives could not be reached on Monday. Transportation Canada spokesman Sao Sao Lu said that under international maritime law, the ownership of the vessel, even if sunk, remains unchanged. In this case, Holland America, because the vessel sank in 1968, the owner's liability is limited by a statute of limitations that went out under the Marine Liability Act. The Marine Liability Act sets a time frame to file claims against the ship surface oil pollution fund. In this case, the fund cannot be used because the incident falls outside the required time frame. Transport Canada is monitoring the situation, providing support, Lou said. This includes National Aerial Surveillance Program aircraft used to monitor ships in Canadian water track ship's activity, detect oil spills, and monitor endangered whales. So it sounded like they had a fund that would help them cover it, but it's limited in time. Did they say that was? When it sank was 1968. Oh, how deep? Oh, it was uh, 360 to 400 feet below. It's always interesting, though. It's always, uh, it sank with that oil on it. Why would they mm -hmm. not have tried it then? So it'll cost more now than it would have then to get that out. Yeah. Because well, it sounds like that's what they're going to have to do: go yeah. down and tap it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so what I'm what I'm thinking is, you know, that's you know, fifty some years in the water. Uh, you know, the hull's corroding, and it's just letting more oil out. Uh, let's see. Uh, so consistent to date is 30 to 50 liters, which doesn't sound like much, but when you get that in the surface of the water, it spreads out pretty quick. Yep. Uh, so, and it's and just a foreboding of much to come. Yes. Yeah. Until it's empty, it's always going to come out. And then uh, the next article, Mac, if you look, they've got a little bit better photos. Uh, I, this one. I, I did post a picture of what the ship looked like. What kind of ship was that? Is that is that like a cargo ship? That's what I, I just went and said, what does that ship look like? And that's what I got. Huh. Because the, the, the company, which was Holland America, don't they run cruise lines? I don't know. That, yeah. So, but the, yeah, the next one had some photos where you can see the oil spread out in the surface. Uh, what I didn't uh, get, it said it, was, it had ran aground. So why is it so freaking deep? Is the shelf that's... by the crew and sank the next day. Yeah, so that it then just floated out. You know, it, it, they grounded it and then it, it drifted 
without propulsion and, and then sank, I'm guessing. Um, this next article talks about it's difficult to quantify how much oil remains on board and how much has leaked. We don't have firm numbers regarding how much fuel and heavy oil may have been aboard the ship at the time of the grounding. What we confirm is there's about 30 to 50 liters of oil on the water at any given time. They put a 1,600-foot boom to protect the area. Uh, how far offshore is that, did they say? Uh, in the photo, it almost looks like you can see in the reflection uh, that it's near a coast. Oh, okay. So, yeah, they they don't say, but it, it seems to be relatively close to shore. If that's, or is that it drifting in? You know, it's how, it doesn't say how far that's drifted in. Right. Said so an oily sheen from the MV Schlick uh, is pictured off the coast of BC Bly Island in late 2020. And then the next article is uh, from Chesapeake Bay Magazine. 2,000 tons of concrete is being added to an artificial reef off Dell Beaches. Fish off the Delaware Beaches got a new holiday habitat this week. Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control sunk more than 2,000 tons of concrete on the artificial reef, 5.5 miles out from the Indian River Inlet between Dewey and Bethany. The concrete typically donated culvert and pipe and other recycled products will provide even more homes for tau tongue and summer flounder, particular popular fish with anglers. DNREC's artificial reef system off the Indian River Inlet already consists of nearly 1,000 retired New York City subway cars and the 180-foot World War II-era Navy frigate Reedville. Reedville was intentionally sunk back in August. It took two and a half hours for her to go under, bow first, and 88 feet of water. She came to rest in the bottom of the ocean and Redbird Reef, about 16 miles off the inlet. The 1.3-mile reef offers opportunity for angling and scuba diving alike. In all, Delaware's 14 reef sites ranging from uh, just off the coast, all the way to 55 miles out along the edge of the continental shelf. And all Delaware's artificial reef program is recycled 2 million tons of rock, 100,000 tons of concrete, 86 tanks and armored carriers, 1,329 retired subway cars, 29 retired vehicles ranging from 30 to 653 feet long. Uh, the DNREC says artificial reefs are especially important in the mid Atlantic because natural rocks is limited unlike New England or South Florida. You know, I would have loved to have a couple of those tanks and armored carriers out here in our lake oh, near yeah, us. That'd be great. Yeah. Oh, it'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, any of this. I mean, look Seriously. at that. Yeah. I mean, railroad, subway cars, uh, any of that. If we had five or ten of those stretched out from you know, for five miles from the North Pier up to the Havana or even around, you'd have a lot of diving out here. You really would. Yeah, you'd, you'd have a lot of people coming in. It would be a, a big tourist draw. Yep. That Redbird looks like a pretty nice vessel that they sunk there too. Yeah. I'm always curious when they do that, like they always say, what is the cost of getting it ready to sink, both mm -hmm. from the lead fouling paint and the asbestos yeah yeah because they they make you take almost all that off 
Unless it just accidentally sinks, then. Yes, yes. A Civil War airship found in Marine Sanctuary, and this is the Alpena News, so we know which sanctuary that is, up in uh, Lake Huron uh, in Michigan. Uh, decades after they gave up the adventure of searching for shipwrecks, two underwater explorers with Alpena roots made a thrilling find in the waters of Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Lifelong friends Mark Gamage and Joe Van Wagen first got their feet wet hunting for sunken ships near Alpena this summer, searched for and found Civil War era shipwreck not seen in 160 years. Along the way, they discovered another wreck they thought destroyed, rekindled the love for searching for deep waters for historical treasure that they hope will lead to more adventures and finds in years to come. Hunting the waters around Mackinac City, Whitefish Point, and Lake Superior in the Thumb in the 1970s and 80s, a pair found three shipwrecks in the 80s before taking a break from underwater route searches. Three years ago, feeling something was missing, they purchased some fancy equipment, dove into online research about other lost ships they might locate. They set their sights on finding elusive Augustus Handy, a grain-hauling schooner that went down rough weather off the coast of uh, northeastern Michigan only weeks after the Civil War began. In the style of midi-modern underwater searches, they divide the area over a spectacle reef, about 13 miles east of Sheboygan, where the Hardy was last known to have been. In the quadrants, we essentially mowed the lawn, said Van Wagen. Is that Wagnon? Van Wagnon, maybe. They dove their search ship in lines as sonar sent down the boat, beamed up a precise image of objects as small as a rock from the lake's bottom. When you pass a ship, it sticks out like a sore thumb, he said. On June 16th, explorers thought they hit their mark. The ship in the approximate area where the Handy disappeared, loomed onto the view, sending down a remotely operated vehicle to get better looks. They discovered a ship they'd found didn't match the description of the Handy. Their find had been stripped of anything of value by professional wreckers. It was clear only a small amount of iron ore was left in its cargo hold. The ship was eventually discovered, the Nightingale, a schooner that sank in 1869. For years, historians believe the ship had been cut into pieces and hauled in deeper water to make room for a lighthouse that was to be built on the reef where it sank. History was corrected when Gamage and Van Wagnon uh, found the vessel intact, a rare discovery. They also showed through their underwater imagery the boat was pushed down a slope along the lake's floor to make way for the lighthouse. In the search for the handy continued in nearby waters, August 7th, Gimage and Van Wagnon uh, saw a long-hidden vessel lurk in the depths. You won't believe how exciting it is, Van Wagnon said. There's nothing like it, and actually find two in one summer is very special. It's hard enough to find one wreck, let alone two. Uh, Van Wagnon was the first to see the vessel that nobody had laid eyes on since May 7th, 1861. The ROV sent imagery of the beautiful ship almost fully intact, its deck and railing classy for its time. The rudders turned hard to port. Watery images revealed the crew on board that stormy 1861 day. Eventually saw the reef just before it hit and turned hard. You got him. So, Craig, you're back, you jerk. <laughs> uh, so uh, the rudders turned hard to port. Watery images reveal the crew on board that stormy 1861 day eventually saw the reef just before it hit and turned hard to try and avoid the collision. Uh, Gamage surmised. According to survivors, the ship took on water fast. The crew had to flee to the lifeboat, leaving clothes and other belongings behind. Through a back-breaking 15-mile road to Sheboygan in rough weather to 40-degree water, 
the crew all survived. Behind them, their ship sank, taking with it loads of corn from the ripe fields of the Midwest meant to feed the hungry masses on the East Coast as war was getting underway. Some of that corn is still in the ship's hold deep in the waters off northeast Michigan. The ship abandoned in haste. Looks as though someone had simply closed the door in 1861 and walked away. The cook stove waits to serve its next meal and the rope lies coiled on the deck. It's all soft and funky, said Van Wagnon. Uh, but it's amazing, the stuff that's still there. It's like a time capsule. We were the first ones to glimpse it in 159 years. The find is historically significant, but the ship is still in such prime condition, offering up unknown details about shipbuilding in the late 1800s. Plus, the explorers said a successful underwater hunt is just plain exciting. In the past, they haven't made a big fuss about the finds, but revealing the location and putting out press releases. This time, they decided to make sure people knew about the two ships that had been hiding, hidden from human eyes for so long. The details of ship location aren't public, but officials from National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration are planning to document the finds to be marked for divers eager to explore history. Discoveries are exciting, said Van Wagnon, but the pair decided to go round. They'd even been more fun when they're shared. 1970s, they spent two years diving uh, near Alpina when they first got the taste of shipwreck hunting. The marine sanctuary didn't exist yet, nor did sonar tools and mapping services that allowed divers to find wrecks far from shore with no landmarks can be seen. Our heart is kind of Alpina, said Gamage. It's where we got our start. They're not done exploring. They got several projects up their sleeves with details top secret for now and hope to have more exciting news to share next summer. You're up on the boat watching a 42-inch TV, driving a mini-sub around and, and taking video. It's a blast. See, Mac, that's what we're doing wrong. <laughs> we're, we, we don't have a 42-inch TV for the... Of course, we well, don't have a mini-sub either. And that's the solution, too. Huh? What can I say? Yeah, we can sit back a little bit farther. That's the secret. 42-inch TV. Is that a photo from the find? Yes. Wow. That's pretty nice, though. It's a, hang on, I'll give you another one. I thought it was really nice of it. Yeah. I always like it when they say pristine because we know it ain't pristine, but it's pretty damn nice. Yeah. In that preserve up there, I would almost forgive them for saying pristine because we know that it's going to be about as good as you can expect for that age. That's a nice shot right there, that bottom one. Yeah. And even with and the muscles is, on, you, you get a good view of the rail. Can you imagine, though, 30 years ago what that would have looked like? Oh. I mean, I've, I remember diving up there in the 70s, and I look at them now, and it's like night and freaking day. And you've had a lot of sand shift up there, too. There's wrecks we dove on that are now gone. Just covered in sand? Yep. No. I mean, there was one we used to dive on, actually, that had been named the Uganda at one time. Uh, it had had several names through the years. And I don't think, maybe eight, nine years ago, we dove the same site. And almost everything, maybe 30-foot section down the slope was the only thing left where it used to be smokestacks and rails and boilers, all of that's covered over with sand. Well, the iron sides, 
I had heard so many stories about how great that wreck was. And it was it, it was still a good wreck when I dove on it, but now oh in the last ten, 10 years. In ten yeah. years it went to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. There was like a deck board still hanging up and the arches were still up. And uh last time I was there the, the arches were mostly down and they're probably completely down by now. Well, this I, next one, go ahead. I was gonna say visibility has increased. Yes. So that's a nice part. Yeah, you get a little bit better perspective of the sights, how they, yeah. how the vessels lay in the bottom. And so I have enjoyed that. Ivory from a 16th crew shipwreck reveals a new details about African elephants. In 2008, miners off the coast of Nambia stumbled upon a buried treasure sunken Portuguese ship known as the Bomb Jesus. Went missing on its way to India and 1533 trading ship bore a trove of gold silver coins and other valuable materials to a team of archaeologists and biologists the bomb jesus most precious cargo was a haul of more than 100 elephant tusks the largest archaeological west africa it's by far the most elephant ivory said paul lane an archaeologist at the university of cambridge not involved with the work the new results reported on February 8th, trade networks. For having been lost at sea for nearly 500 years, Bomb Jesus Ivory is incredibly well preserved, said uh, Aldea, the other biologist at the University of Illinois in Urbane Champaign. Uh, when the ship sank, the copper and lead ingots stored above the tusks kind of pushed the ivory down in the seabed, protecting the tusks from scattering and erosion. Frigid ocean currents also ran through the region of the Atlantic. That could really, uh, really cold current probably helped preserve the DNA that was in the tusks. She and her colleagues extracted DNA from 44 tusks. Genetic material revealed that all the ivory came from African rain, oh, African forest elephants. And I'm not going to say the Latin name rather than the African savanna kind. Uh, by comparing the ivory DNA with the past and present African elephant population with known origins, team determined that the shipwreck tusks belonged to elephants from at least 17 genetically distinct herds across West Africa, only four of which still exist. Other elephant lineages may have died out as a result of hunting or habitat destruction. All types or isotopes of carbon and nitrogen used in tusks provide more details about where these elephants lived, carbon and nitrogen accumulated tusks over the elephant's lifetime through the food the animal eats and water it drinks. Relative amounts of different carbon and nitrogen isotopes depend on where the elephant spent most of its time in, <clears throat> say a rainforest or an arid grassland. Isotopes in the bomb Jesus tusks revealed that the elephants lived a mix of forest and savannas. They were quite surprised, said study co-author Ashley Katu an archaeologist with the University of Oxford. Modern African elephants are known to roam forests as well as savannas, but researchers thought that forest elephants first ventured out in the grassland only in the 20th century as many savanna elephants were wiped out by poachers and the forest elephants' original habitat were destroyed by human development. The new research suggests that African forest elephants were uh, amenable to both forest and savanna habitats all along. By understanding the habitats historically preferred by Africa, forest elephants could inform efforts on their conservation. 
More than 60% of the elephants have been poached within the last decade, and the ones that remain inhabit only a quarter of the historical range, according to African Wildlife Foundation. The origins of the bomb Jesus ivory was also painted a clear picture of the 16th century ivory trade of the African continent. Lane says the fact that tusks originated from many different herds hints that multiple communities in West Africa were involved in supplying the ivory, but it's unclear whether Portuguese traders gathered this diverse ivory from several local source ports along the coast or from a single port that was linked extensively to trading networks within the continent. Lane says future analysis of ivory covered historical port sites that will help solve the mystery. I think that's sort of funny listening to that. It's, it's interesting, but do you know the whole story about that? About I mean, what? About why do why do you care about a ship with with uh, African elephant tusk on it? Is that really something that would strike your fancy? That would make you want to go out there and dive a ship and and recover stuff? Well, I mean, I, wanna, I dive just about anything. But you, you want to know the real reason? Why is that? Okay, its fate was actually unknown until two thousand eight. It, its remains were recovered during diamine, diamond mining operations in 2006 on the coast, Nanambia. The De Beers Diamond Company discovered a copper ingot. An unusual trident marked on the age metal was later identified as a hallmark of a particular Renaissance European wealth merchant. The shipwreck is the oldest and most valuable ever discovered in the coast of sub-Saharan Africa. The discovery was unusual in that all of the contents were able to be recovered and cataloged without interference from scavengers due to the highly secure nature of De Beers mining operations. The cargo, the real cargo, included 44,000 copper ingots, which are credited with weighing the ship down and creating a deterrent to decaying insects and organisms and help preserve the remains of the ship. 44,000 <laughs> copper ingots is why that's important. <laughs> the other part of the cargo is what we're talking about with the elephants. I mean, I love elephants. I like to see them in the zoo. I'd love to find a couple of tons of copper too. So is the tusk just something they threw on top? Oh, they said it was underneath. Was short. Yeah, it was other cargo. Huh. But the big one was, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I just thought I'd toss that in. I thought that was cool. No, I, I like that, yeah. Well, I had heard the name The Bomb Jesus because I, I know we've we've covered this one in the past. But uh, that's cool. Yeah. Irish butterboat shipwreck mystery, which tra tragically left 20 dead, finally solved after 250 years. Mystery of the shipwreck off the coast of Ireland has finally been solved 250 years after it sank. Skeletal remains of the large vessel known as the butterboat became visible as low tide shifts. County Sligo landmark and popular tourist attraction has drawn curiosity for years, but its true origin was never fully known. It's been thought to be part of the fabled Spanish Armada in the 16th century, but thanks to new archaeological and archival research by Ireland's National Monument Service, that theory was ruled out with a tragic identity. The ship has now been uncovered. 
Samples from the timbers of the shipwreck place the construction of the vessel firmly in the first half of the 18th century, sometime after 1712. The house included timber, was probably sourced from the English Midlands, probably Yorkshire. Further research in the 18th century historical accounts led, led to the vessel being identified as a Greyhound, a coastal trading ship out of Whitby Port by Yorkshire, England, owned by Mrs. Alley. 20 people died when it sank on December 12, 1770. The Greyhound was caught in a storm off the coast of Mayo, unable to seek safe shelter in Broadhaven Bay. It was driven to anchor in a perilous position beneath the towering cliffs of Eris Head. The crew was forced to abandon ship, but in a tragic oversight, the cabin boy was left on board. Learning the plight of the cabin boy, some crew members, the crew of the passing ship Mary from the Galway, the local volunteers from Broadhaven Bay attempted to rescue the boy and the stricken ship. While the rescue team did manage to board the Greyhound and move the vessel away from the cliffs, the ship was driven further out to sea by the force of the storm with some of the volunteer crew and the cabin boy still on board. Later that night, she was wrecked at uh, Sheeda Strand, 100 kilometers to the east, with a loss of 20 lives. Just one man, Mr. Williams from Eris, survived the wrecking. Last Saturday, December 12th, the 250th anniversary of the event, locals and members of the National Monument team who uncovered the story held a ceremony to pay tribute to those who died. Minister for the State Heritage and Department of Housing, uh, Malcolm Noon, uh, Noonan, said there had been a huge amount of local interest in the wreck and was very pleased the National Monument Service had been able to finally confirm its true story. In particular, I'm struck by the value of the folklore archives along with applied archaeological research and uncovering the full and tragic story of the Greyhound and those caught up in the tragedy. This calamitous story illustrates the starkly the perils of sea, but also highlights how in times of trouble the common bond of sea brings people from different backgrounds together in an attempt to save lives. I am proud that my department has been able to bring light to the story of tragedy, but also extraordinary bravery and compassion, selflessness, and heroism. I'm glad they didn't say pristine. <laughs> Just remind me of the wrecks they're discovering and excavating temporarily. Mm -hmm. Like in Florida, we talked about last week. Yeah. Yeah, because there'll, there'll be somebody who, who walks around and goes, eh, that needs to, they need to raise that and restore it. <laughs> well, how about this next one where they're trying to do some restoration? ZJA to construct an underwater museum around a 271-year-old shipwreck, a 40-meter-long cargo ship that sunk off the coast of Hastings, UK. Dutch architectural firm ZJA has unveiled its design for an underwater museum in the Netherlands, proposed institutionally built around the 271-year-old ship that sank off the coast of Hastings, United Kingdom. Dub uh, docking the Amsterdam, the project will see the recovery and relocation shipwreck without ever taking it out of the water. The museum will then be constructed around a glass tank encasing the wreck, which will allow visitors to observe the 40-meter-long sunken ship with multiple viewing ports. The Amsterdam ship was made in the 18th century by Dutch East India Ship uh, Company, VOC. In 1749, the cargo ship was returning from its main voyage from Asia when a disastrous storm made it unsteerable and the captain eventually beached the ship near the town of Hastings. Although parts of the ship has been destroyed, the hull and contents remain intact. The museum has been commissioned to preserve its remains from any further erosion. Details surrounding the institution's interior have not been disclosed. 
The goal for the project is to provide insight on Dutch maritime history. Visiting the venues, like entering a theater that stages investigation and progress, engages the public with discoveries the divers or searchers do inside the wreck. Per uh, the project's description, uh, they've got a link to the website talking about it. Uh, and then there's another article that shows a little bit different version. I mean, it does sound, if you're going to try and preserve it, it seems like leaving it in the water is about the best way to do it. Did you have the pictures I posted? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, because we've been talking about these uh, people that bring up the wrecks in other episodes. You know, if you're, if somebody's listening is interested, you go back the last two or three episodes, we've talked about some that had been actually raised and floated. Yeah. But uh, once they get exposed to air, they don't survive long. I'm the 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 photos of it where they're showing people walk down the that kind of that observation area with the windows. That makes it look real nice. The photo of it from probably a drone. It doesn't look like there's much left. <laughs> Well, that last picture I posted, I was curious about, I don't have a perspective of shoreline to it, for the people on the surface on the top looking down. Uh-huh. Did you see that picture? Yeah. I'm curious. Well, I didn't see the drone shot, though. Uh, that's in, I'm going to, if you look at the next article that was covering it, uh, that's the one. Let me see, maybe I can download it. I don't know. We'll see if my internet's quick enough for this. So I'll upload. Oops, I got it. Okay. I just, yeah, totally different. Yeah, because so, that looks like I'm just the, the only thing is it looks like it settled in the sand pretty quick. So you didn't get what we see a lot with these beach wrecks is that it didn't flay open, it got filled with sand fairly early on. But it seems like if you put down the pilings well enough, then you can excavate that and generate what they're talking about. Yeah, and that's what somebody's decided. What they didn't say is how much is this going to cost and who is paying for it. The project is a joint collaboration between ZJA, Amsterdam City Archaeologist, uh, Jersey Garonski, Consultants Deloitte, engineering firm Marmots, uh, Vecca Shipyards. The project is likely to take several years of the museum slated to open in 2025. So it almost looks like they're maybe they're building a museum right there at the location. Is that possible? Is that where the wreck is now? Well, it's pretty shallow, so. Yeah. Again, well, without a good reference to it, I can't tell. Yeah, because if you look at that photo, where they show the kind of the the sliced view, yeah, the elevation of it, yeah, it's a, it's kind of like on pilings in the water, yeah. so that would make sense that maybe they would just raise it up out. I mean, it's cool. I it certainly, if I ever get over there, I'd love to see it. Well, you need Howard Hughes's Glomar, pull it over there, suck down the grapples, pick it up, bring it into shore. Mm-hmm. Instead of them, then put that page around it. 
Okay. And then we've got one final article. And this one of all places to find an article on scuba diving was the Chicago Tribune. And it says the best scuba uh, scuba regulator. And uh, before somebody asks, I'm going to guess that this is not a uh, normal topic that Chicago Tribune covers. Uh, The author is Bob Beecham. Uh, credited uh, uh, with uh, working with Best Reviews. And uh, just to let you know, he only talked about one brand of regulators, and he said that was his pick, and that was Scuba Pro. And nothing yeah. against Scuba Pro, but you go through this article, and, and it's this is a case of what I call native advertising. Oh, wait, they do have some other regulators. So they had Scuba Pro was the best. Best bang for your buck was pal, uh, the Palatic Yoke Diving Regulator. I haven't even heard of that brand. And then choice three was Cressy Intense. But uh, they say he's a writer for Best Reviews, a product review company with a singular mission to help simplify your purchasing decisions and save you time and money. Best Review spends thousands of hours researching, analyzing, and testing products recommended. Uh, but I would say. You know, a regional newspaper, even that's got wide reach, is not your best source for product reviews for diving gear. You don't think? No, no. There's, I would speculate that this is a native ad. And it's, so that's, so he's from Best Reviews. It's distributed by the Tribune Content Agency. So, why does the content agency LLC want to distribute this article? Is it that they're that desperate for content or is it that somebody maybe slipped them a little bit of money called advertising or native ad to get it published? So it's a distribution network for these, for this content. And kind of the clue is when they say best reviews, there's no link to the website. So the, it wasn't done from the goodness of the website because you would have said, well, yeah, I'll let you show it, but you got to give it me a link back. No. And then also the other thing to be aware of is that best reviews and its newspaper partners may earn a commission if you purchase products through one of our links. So these three items that they recommended for regulators just happen to go to Amazon with uh, affiliate tags. So, just so that you're aware, you, you saw my note, though, didn't you? I just posted. No, let me look. Yeah, but I I would like I said I don't have a problem with uh, you know the regulator that they said was the best. Other than I don't think it's the best. I I agree with you. Is that Poseidon? You'd have to explain why is this Scuba Pro. MK25 EVO better than Poseidon's. And the thing is that uh, even as an experienced diver and purchaser of gear, they had some good recommendations, but that's the way all the, all your great, I, I hate saying called lies, I'll say allegedly, is all start. Because they say price Entry level stage one and two combos started 150, but you'll probably want to upgrade to a more flexible system once you gain some experience. I 
we call this a bait and switch. Where have you seen that you can get a stage one and two combo? I'm assuming new, they didn't say for $150. Nowhere. Nowhere. Right. So what they're trying to do is this is to bait you in to go, oh, that's not too bad. I could do that. And then get you into some place. And then they say you'll likely spend 200 to 700. Well, that's a range. That's like saying a you know, your car will cost you between 30 and a hundred grand. Uh, and then here, here's some of the FAQs from the article. Do I need to buy a first and second stage regulator from the same company? The answer is no. Experienced divers often mix and match equipment. However, if you're relatively new scuba diving, getting both from the same source guarantees they'll work well together. Something that can be a challenge if you buy separately. What they're not telling you is that's being disingenuous. It's, is that, your first stage will have an intermediate pressure, which is what it's, you know, your tank's going to be anywhere from uh, 500 pounds to 3,500 pounds of pressure. And it's got to get it down to something that your second stage can use. Like I've got uh, Aqualung regulator and that has a higher intermediate pressure from that first stage to go to a second stage. So you won't, have, you won't. Have, I was say, have you ever heard though of a person not having a matched first? No, no, I've, I've never company. heard anybody use like, I wouldn't use and like you wouldn't use an aqua lung and then a Poseidon second stage. I, yeah. It's like, excuse me. I've never, unless you're dorking with your own parts and pieces, you know you're what right. I'm saying? And, and when he when says experienced that, divers, I'm saying experienced as in probably dive shop owners, because you want to know what that, that intermediate pressure, you want to know that it's balanced. You want that first stage to get pressure. And then somebody who's experienced, which you don't necessarily recommend is, is a dive shop could tune dissimilar first stages and second stages. So they could work together because that's, that is adjustable. But like you said, I, we always keep them matched. And I would consider us to be fairly experienced. Yeah. Um, they talk about the, do they need regular maintenance and they say yes, but they don't give any details. Uh, they just mentioned that in salt water, you need to rinse them out, let it leave them to dry naturally out in the sun. I, they don't need to dry in the sun. After renting if they're in salt water. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what they said. They, they said rinsing. Yeah, it, although designed to work in salt water, it will crowed if not washed out. Um, so what they're trying to do is create enough talk that a reasonable person would think that they were experts, so they trust that, and then when they give the recommendation, and, and they're hoping that you'll remember just enough when you talk to the dive shop that you'll remember it. But then here's the thing is you're getting a link. You're getting a link from this article to Amazon. So they're trying to tell you that they've given you enough information that you can buy gear. I mean, cause, okay. So I'm going to click on the link. I mean, it's probably a bad thing to do. I'm probably giving them money, but I'm going to click on the link and see what Amazon's going to tell you about that. So that, that best thing where they're saying starts at $150 is a scuba pro MK 25 EVO, a 700 diving regulator. Visit the scuba pro store. And this is on Amazon. The price is nine hundred ninety-five dollars. So, 
so you're going to buy this and take that to your, your, to your class to get certified. Buyer beware. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, scuba pros, I, I don't have anything against their gear. Oh no, uh, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised that this is available on Amazon and that scuba pro has a store. If you're a dive shop, aren't you a little ticked that a brand has probably got rules against you selling gray market or overstuff, you know, your overstock on the internet is now competing with you. Yeah. And well, I did try what... and hit, got to hit Amazon Poseidon regulator. Just see what I'd get. Amazon.com, Poseidon Regulator, 5,000. Amazon this, Amazon that. They sell everything. Yeah. Well, and what they're doing is they're, it's, is the, either they sell it themselves or they're just hosting the store. And these, as a manufacturer or retailer, you can send it to the Amazon warehouse. That's how you get those one-day deliveries. They get the inventory in there, and then you're buying it. But they have to pay for that space in that warehouse for it to go out. Uh, this other brand I had never heard of is, is actually available. And guess what the price is, Mac? What? $144. Wow. The Pala, was it P Atlantic? Atlantic, maybe? That's how they pronounce it. Diving regulator and octopus combo. So that's a first stage and two second stages. For $144. It says unbalanced flow by piston regulator, non adjustable second stage, environmentally sealing, prevents internal corrosion and icing of the first stage, which I'm not going to believe. I spend more than that having mine rebuilt. Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, $144. Uh -huh. It says temporarily out of stock. We're working hard to bring it back for you. Do they have any details? I mean, that is a scary price. Yeah. It's a choking hazard, so they don't recommend that you give this to your children under three. I don't know. I, I say a lot of three-year-olds scuba diving. Yeah. <laughs> Not. It was first released and made available on Amazon in 2015. Manufacturing is Aqua Edge. Um. Yeah. So, do I dare look at any of the reviews? Let's let's see. Let's take a look. It's got sixty ratings. They're all four out of five stars. Oh, <laughs> top review in the United States. No yoke din. This is not a yoke style. It's din, which is a pain in the ass to convert all my tanks. At this point, it would be best to return it. So disappointed in order, I'd order this to go the weekend. Oh, so you bought it. So the guy bought it thinking he would go diving that weekend. They clearly show that it's a, uh, that's a yoke. Wow. That makes me question the, uh, the seller. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. Can you go down to depth of a hundred foot with this regulator? The answer is I can't trust it yet. I just had in the pool season the yellow cap came out. Well, what's the yellow cap? 
that's probably the you know the protector for the regulator itself. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Be one hundred forty-four dollars. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, dive shops have got to just have a fit when somebody buys this and then comes in with us and says they want a lesson on it. Unengaged. Yeah. Uh, and somebody's answer is like, does it, does it, you know, th their answer was, uh, I've used this for 15 dives, it works great. That's what we call a warm up. Uh, let's see, another one. After uh, 12 to 15 dives, a regulator started to free flow before it would let a spray mist of water into my mouth when I breathe in. Yeah, that's not something you normally want. Yeah, 140 foot. Yeah, I just want to have that cool spray in the back of my throat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And here's probably one of the better reviews. This was from December 3rd, 2020. Use this regular and there's a big difference between my old Oceanic or Cressy reg. Not always worth skimping out in a reg. will only keep as a spare in warm water shallow dives. I wouldn't. Would you? We've talked about this before. You don't keep your least confident reg as a spare yeah and there's i don't have any there. regs that i would not trust you know down the sport depth yeah but by the same token i have my best regs always on my bailouts let's see leaking first stage all the high ratings just great to have it. The price is very good to me. Are they going to use it for like decoration? <laughs> Does not work well over 2700. So give me a crappy fill in my tank. <laughs> Works okay. My low pressure steel. Oh, wow. Okay. Just what we thought. Eh, a little sidetrack squirrel mode. Okay. Well, that does it for scuba in the news, and I guess that's potentially good scuba gear, but I don't think we talked about anything that I would recommend. Allegedly. So, uh, so uh, anybody getting any diving in? I don't know that. Uh, this week, I think, has been dry for most everybody I have seen in the chat room, the club chat room. Uh, I do know we've got one possibly this weekend, and I got one scheduled for the middle of next week. Yeah, and well, for New Year's dive on New so, Year's night. I know Bob is going up to the quarry uh, on New Year's Day and dive. Yep, Gilboa. He was going to yep. do a New Year's uh, New Year's so, Day dive there. And I know that, see, uh, Mary Beth, Kevin, Amy, myself, Larry, are scheduled for the New Year's dive so far. Yep. So we'll I'm, see. I, I'm, I'm going to... Start my holiday vacation on Wednesday of next week. So I think I may try and just do kind of a quick tune up in the river. See how that goes. We're doing ours at Forest Beach, so there'll be no current. Oh, Forest Beach. Okay. Well, that's where I'll go then. Because, I mean, it's a lot. Of, you know, you got the sandy part. You can walk out, sit down on the bottom in six feet, and you're going to be fine. Uh, I was out there a couple of weeks ago just checking it out, and we had eight-foot visibility from the surface. So I'm hoping it'll be pretty nice out there. Yeah, we haven't had a lot of, well, I was going to say we haven't had a lot of precipitation, but that's a lie. We had rain like crazy with this last Saturday. 
Yeah, uh, if you're downtown again, I, I went flying the other day checking out. Remember, the guys were saying they've had the best visibility in the river in 50 years. And I went and tracked it from Niles all the way back. And it's like, damn, I can see the middle of the river until I got near St. Joe. And the third bridge before you got to the I-94 bridge, it went from I can see something to crap. And I couldn't see what was polluting it. But, I mean, I could see down to the bottom. The visibility was that good. I was past Jasper Dairy. So it'd be it'd be nice to have a photo of that, mm -hmm. and then and then email that into a county commissioner meeting and saying, "Hey, can anybody explain why we've got Clear River to this point and then it goes to crap here?" If I had a boat, I would have liked to have gone in at Jasper area, they were, and just travel and see where it, where it shifted. Because that tells tells me that there's some huge runoff or something. Yeah. Because there's probably a creek or something that comes in there, or maybe there's a, a drainage system uh, that is emptying out there. And I know that was one of the problems with some of the uh, old strategies. What they used to do, you know, a lot of the farmland we have around here, if you go back 100 years, was unusable. It was flooded or swampy. Oh, yeah. And they dug these, like... Uh, in near me they've got ditches that are oh, 15 20 feet wide and just as deep and if a car goes off the road good chance you're drowning in just this year they finally put guardrails on that road uh, i know people i went to school with who have drowned in that in that ditch uh, so what they've done is they is they dig these ditch, ditches out and your swamp and your your land is supposed to act as a giant filter. Well, to get that water out of the way, you got to straighten up those channels, and they'll eventually, sometimes, cover a whole river uh, with tiles and concrete culverts, and that accelerates it. So it doesn't have time to filter out. You get a rain, and 10, 15 miles from the river, it just races right to the river. So that could be what we're seeing there. Yeah. Is that there's a drainage system going in, and it may be worth putting a little bit of pressure on some of the local leaders and saying, "Hey, you need to, you know, because you can't even put in a uh, if you have a business and you put in a a, a parking lot, you now have to have uh, a drainage area parking lot empties into to collect the water, which is a good thing. So uh, maybe we need to do some retroactive work mm -hmm. on getting some of this addressed. So yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to try for next Wednesday. I got to make sure I just brought my gear in this last week. Uh, I'm trying desperately to get it to where mice won't eat it. There's, we got just such a mouse problem in the house this year. We'll, we'll get a very nice plastic container, those heavy-duty ones. That's uh -huh. what I keep my gear in. Yeah, I, I like to keep mine hanging up. So, But yeah, I, I might have to do that. I, I've got you know a couple of those plastic containers. Uh, so I wouldn't have room to hang all my gear up <laughs> as it is. I've got one, two, two sections of shelving with tubs of gear. Mm. Nope. I'm pretty lean that way. Uh, 
but I'm, I'm planning on, you know, building some organization, uh, make it also display, maybe a backdrop. So I think that's it for diving. So we'll, we'll let everybody know how it goes. Yep. Uh, you have, you have a dive safety story for this week. Actually, I've been, you know, we've been talking about uh, every week accidents, you know, how to prevent them, what happens. And hopefully people learn from this, like this can happen to you. So tonight's is called ways to save your life. So we'll start out. The trial was heading into its third week. At stake was nearly eight million and the future of diving. I was the last witness called as a diving liability expert for the defense. Preliminary questions and direct examination established my qualifications. Knowledge of the case and my opinion that the defendants, dive store, boat, and dive, leader, dive leaders were not at fault. So, Mr. Hardy, in your opinion, who is negligent? Mr. Paulus, the plaintiff, and how is he negligent of his own injuries? Mr. Paulus is an experienced certified diver and as such has certain responsibilities that only he can fulfill. He failed in several significant ways to meet those responsibilities. Well, what were those specific responsibilities he failed to meet and created his injuries? Mr. Paulus was not fit for this dive. Medical condition, his heart trouble that he concealed from the dive leaders, his lifestyle, recent illness, all added to his physical and mental stress, which, when combined with the cold and fatigue he encountered on this dive, set him up for an accident. During the dive, he swam not only away from the group and the dive leader, but also from his dive buddy. So when he encountered difficulties, there was nobody there to help. Next, as the current increased, Mr. Paulus experienced difficulty swimming and then breathing and controlling his buoyancy. Rather than pausing to regain control of the situation, he continued on until his level of stress was out of control, causing him to panic and began an out-of-control ascent that led to an air embolism. The equipment, the environment, and the others on this dive were not the cause of Mr. Paul's accident. He was, fortunately, others were available when he surfaced unconscious. They gave him the best possible emergency care. Mr. Paulus is lucky to be alive. And so it goes case after case. That's what you always read about. Divers make mistakes, have accidents. Then they or their survivors look for somebody else to blame. Now, that's not to say that there are not cases where the dive leader, boat operator, score owner, or manufacturer makes a mistake that harms the diver. And that's why we have dive, accident, and liability insurance. But... The vast majority of diving accidents are caused by diver error. These accidents lead to legal actions and increased insurance costs for everybody. Most sadly, they lead to needless suffering and loss. So after many years of reviewing and discussing scuba accidents, I've come to believe that most accidents can be prevented and or minimized at the minimum. So how say you? Well, let's talk about eight guidelines I've distilled from hundreds of scuba accident reviews, you know, the, the investigations whose purpose is really to save lives. And these are what I firmly, firmly believe should be emphasized for all divers. And probably number one, have overall good fitness. Several studies have indicated that 20 to 35% of all scuba fatalities result from heart and circulatory problems. 
prior lifestyle and medical condition set the stage, while the mental and physical stresses of diving trigger the event, usually in middle-aged men. Because the accident occurs in or underwater, it is usually fatal and officially listed as a drowning. How to resolve that? Well, that's easy. However, for all divers, especially middle-aged men, just to have a regular medical exam, one of those yearly ones, to determine whether you're still fit for the stresses of diving. That small investment of time and money required for an annual physical is a big favor to yourself and everybody that cares about you and can, pre and can prevent as many as one-third of all scuba fatalities. Number two, dive with others and know when and where and not to dive. Dialing solo or separated from other divers does not cause accidents, but it does mean that if something goes wrong, additional help is not available. Diving on organized trips with dive clubs, dive stores from dive boats, dive resorts, dive classes, under supervision ensures that dive professionals and emergency support equipment are available if a problem arises. Experience clearly demonstrates that when a dive leader is present, a potentially fatal accident often becomes a near miss or a lesser injury. Diving with support and supervision is particularly important when you're new to diving or have been away from diving for a while. Knowing when and where to dive takes skill and experience. One of diving's most important safety rules is that every diver has the right to make a no-dive decision at any time before or during a dive, and that other divers will respect this decision regardless of whether it's based on environmental conditions, fitness, equipment, or the planned dive activity. The bottom line, know when to say no, know when to say enough. Next item, how about pause and comfort for safety? Now, though somewhat demanding, the dive had been wonderful and very rewarding. Swimming slowly up the slope from 60 feet, Susan glances at her pressure gauge and says, Oh my God, under 500 pounds. My instructor said never to surface with less than 500. She bolts to the surface where a buddy finds her unconscious. Rescue services beat her to a recompression chamber. She's treated for embolism and released with no residual effects. As divers, we learn many important safe diving practices, but they must be applied in a safe and sensible way. Obviously, surfacing slowly and under control is more important than how much air is left in your tank. We also learn to solve problems underwater by stopping, breathe, by stopping the activity, breathing easy, think about what's going on, and taking deliberate action. Let's apply the skill not to just the problem solving, but to problem prevention. Every time you make a significant change during a dive, getting in or out of the water, going up or down, pause. That doesn't mean take a minute and say, wait a minute, let me think what I'm going to do. Just think about it for a second. Just pause. Why? Your vision, your respiration, your heart rate, center of gravity, your buoyancy, your weight, your hearing, body temperature, change dramatically as you move up and down in and out of water. The mind and body needs a little time to process and react to these changes. Smooth changes are good changes. A pause at each transition to check yourself, your buddy, your instruments and environment allows you to adjust to the change and confront emergencies. 
like casually looking at your gauge occasionally will prevent you from, oh my God, I'm out of air. Number three, breathe, breathe for life. The dive instructor is distraught. A prior student, now a certified diver, has died on his third open water dive with nearly a thousand PSI in his tank. The investigator has been asking the instructor questions to which only he can reply. How can this be? He had plenty of air to ascend easily from 60 feet. His buddy said he started swimming hard for the service, then just gave up and fell to the bottom. Why? Well, breathing underwater is the most important adaptive skill we learn as scuba divers. It deserves far more attention and training than the simple admonishment, never hold your breath. A case in point is overbreathing, demanding more from the regulator than it can supply. Overbreathing is implicated in a large number of diving accidents. On investigation, Regulator works fine and well within specifications, but the evidence suggests the diver was not getting enough air. What happened? Adapting successfully to scuba includes breathing in a slow, deep, relaxed manner. Paying attention, particular attention, to a deliberate and complex, or not complex, but complete exhale, even in stressful situations. Otherwise, the result could be over-breathing a regulator no matter how good it is or how well you cared for it. If you're excited, panicky, you have a good chance of over-breathing your regulator. It's not that it doesn't work. It's that your, your adrenaline level is so high. Another life-saving point. It is nearly impossible to really be out of air, but you can be low on air. This means if you breathe gently and ascend, more air will become available. One of the reasons you should keep your regulator in your mouth during emergencies. Your power inflator will also work when you are sharing air with another diver because you're low on air. Power inflators are simple on and off valves that equalize pressure between the tank and the BC. And at very low pressures, they just do it more slowly. Among the more preventable diver fatalities are the cases in which the tank valve is not turned completely on. If the tank valve is not completely open, the flow of air to the regulator is restricted and causes an apparent out-of-air situation, especially as you get deeper. Even though the pressure gauge shows plenty of air, the diver then overbreathes the, the regulator, panics, and has a fatal accident. Obviously, the best procedure to has is to have opened up the tanks fully before you got into the water, but even that small amount that is turned on, if you take slow breaths, will give you enough to get back to the surface. So you've got to be in control and be relaxed. Now, Sharon's BC inflator had been leaking slightly on the last serval dives, and now it's leaking even worse, requiring her to dump air from her BC every few minutes. Swimming slowly up the slope, she thinks, what a pain. And then suddenly a beautiful ray catches her attention for a few moments. She suddenly noticed she is ascending out of control. What to do? Where's the dump? How did this happen? Can't breathe. Can't slow down. She services unconscious and is fortunate that the chamber treatment is successful. Control and relaxation are the key to safe, comfortable, enjoyable diving. And the most important aspect of control is mental. In most cases, if you can think it, you can do it whether it's equalizing, maintaining buoyancy, your orientation, or breathing in a relaxed manner. 
In diving, your mind and body must work together. However, scuba training seldom focuses on helping divers deal with the physical and mental stress of diving that can diminish our control and relaxation. Unless this is contained, increasing stress can and often does lead to panic, a sudden overwhelming loss of control. Panic kills. The key is an approach to skills that teaches skills development that teaches divers to remain relaxed and in control, to be aware of the situation, yet able to focus on details at the same time. A diver who can do so seldom shows up in accident statistics. Ascend with control, another one. I don't want to miss anything, so I was using my last drop of air, Hal said to the attendant. Did you come up slow and do a safety stop? Nah, I seldom do. It's never been a problem before. The appendant puts a completed accident questionnaire down next to the cot in the recompression chamber to prepare Hal to prepare Hal for the next oxygen period. Bottom line: sending slowly, under control, and with a safety stop, help prevent decompression sickness, reduces the risk of lung overpressurization injuries, including air embolism, prevents buddy separation because you didn't douse distance his yours, and minimizes the risk of colliding with a boat with your head. A normal ascent should be made with neutral buoyance, venting air from your BC or dry suit as you ascend, with a minimum of swimming, which reduces stress. Ascent rate should be less than 30 feet per minute. Safe to stop for three minutes at 15 feet should be included when ascending from deeper dives. But don't forget, safe to stop can be done from anywhere from 10 to 30 feet and the appropriate length of time can be determined by your depth gauge, air consumption, and, and your watch, or your dive computer. In an emergency situation, such as a low on air situation, your options are send at a normal rate, remembering that more air will become available as you ascend. Switch to redundant air supply, yours or your buddies if available. Share air with your buddy using an alternate air source if your buddy is closer than the surface. Make an emergency swimming ascent, swimming faster than normal, letting the expanding air in the BC or dry suit help you with the ascent. Make an emergency buoyant ascent by inflating the BC, ditching weights or both, and exhaling as you ascend. As a last resort, last resort consider classic buddy breathing by sharing one regulator second stage but only if you're well-trained and practiced in the technique. Although divers can lose control of their ascent, serious injury is not inevitable risk. The risk of an out-of-control ascent can be greatly reduced by relaxing, breathing easy, and looking up, dumping all the air from your BC or dry suit, flaring as you approach the surface, head back, arms and legs spread eagle facing the surface. Based on scuba lab results and tests, these procedures cannot completely stop and out of control, but they can minimize the rate in which you are. If weights have not been ditched, and you, you can basically cut the speed of your scent in half by doing this, especially if the weights have been ditched. Number six, get positive. Everything went wrong immediately. The guides missed the reef and dropped the divers in the water over the abyss. Everyone was falling deeper and deeper, faster and faster. 
Oh, Marcus, because remember, it was his instructor's advice. If all hope is get lost, get positive. He ditched his weight, held down the power inflator button. At first, nothing seemed to happen. Then everything seemed to go in reverse. Less pressure, more light, easier to breathe. Then he remembered more advice. Relax, breathe easy, look up. Finally broke the surface. A close call, but uninjured. Every diving accident study has established that the vast majority, 80 to 100% of dead divers, have not ditched their weights. During major diving emergencies, ditching the victim's weights is one of the first and most important actions a rescuer can take. It's far better to be positive and on the surface and risk DCS or age than to be on the bottom with no air to breathe. It's not a debate. It's a fact. Fundamental to weight ditching problems is that divers do not get enough practice doing it correctly. In the older days, when people used weight belts, weight belt ditching is a two-handed process, or as was taught, the so-called quick-draw method to slap both hands on the hips, slide them to the weight belt, into the buckle, releasing the buckle, throwing the belt away from the body so it doesn't land on your fins. Whichever, you know, using whichever hand works best. Integrated weight systems in BCs may require one or both hands, may be right or left-handed, may use cross-draw, or you may only ditch part of the weights. The important aspect of the integrated systems is that you and your buddies know how it works. Another sad reality of fatal accidents is that victims sometimes ditch or attempt to ditch the scuba unit, their regulator, their BC, and their tank instead of the weight belt whenever they're wearing a weight belt by itself. This seems bizarre until you realize scuba instruction often puts more emphasis on removing and replacing the scuba unit than on ditching the weight belt. Number seven, get proper treatment. When in doubt, find out. The instructor is beside yourself as he comforts the emergency room doctor at the hospital. Don't you understand? The diver surfaced unconscious. She has an air embolism. We need to give her more oxygen. Get her to a helicopter. Take her to a chamber. Now just sit tight there, doctor replies. I'm in charge here. We'll follow our protocol. Is that clear? First aid and medical treatment and embolism and DCS have improved significantly in the last 10 years. Unfortunately, we need more emergency equipment and a great deal more education for divers and the medical community. The first step is recognizing problems by conducting a field neurological exam. The next steps include providing first aid for shock, administering oxygen, and if possible, fluids. Of course, CPR takes priority if needed. While you're reassuring the victim, establish communications, get transportation to the nearest appropriate medical facility. The only definitive medical treatment for embolism or DCS is hyperbaric oxygen. Do that, but always. Have someone call Dan for backup advice. Help the doctor out. He may not be conversant with diving issues. Number eight, are you experienced? And are you ex maintaining your experience? Most diving accidents occur in open water on scuba, not swimming pools or while snorkeling. Most accidents occur to recreational divers who have limited diving experience including accidents during introductory scuba experiences, open water training dives, dives by unqualified or uncertified divers, and to certified divers with limited experience diving on their own. Key element to safe diving is for retraining, 
continuing education, and self-testing. We all know the emergency drills, but how often are you and your buddy really practicing them? Words of wisdom for tonight. Thank you. Those were those were all good points. Hopefully people can learn from them and not become a statistic. Well, if you look at what we've been going through of accidents, scenarios, yeah. every one of those items, the key item, I think, more than anything else is panic. Yes. Once you panic, you're screwed. Well, and then the, the one that I thought was interesting was I'd almost call like a false panic where not completely understanding the training where you had the diver who was down realize that she was just starting to get below 500 pounds and then rush to the surface, not understanding why the 500 pounds is important. Well, and it's can, like, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I know in training, it, it wasn't really directly implied. It's like, you know, you better be bringing back the tanks with 500 pounds. But the reason was, is so that you, had a safety margin because you don't know if that 500 pounds is really 500. So yeah, 500 pounds doesn't mean you're out. It means you're at 500 pounds. Well, it's like this because you get to certification doesn't mean you got to get all of them down the line. But I mean, I went ahead and just for the hell of it, I went and got the masters again, what, three, four years ago mm -hmm. because I wanted the, what did I forget? What has changed? Uh, yeah. When we do our pool parties, when we go down and say, I want you to go do a Dolphin Don for me. It's like one of the guys came back and said, damn, I haven't done one since I used a weight belt. Yeah. He realized that when he's doing his integrated weight system. It's like, this is my point. You're an experienced diver and you have not practiced. When have you really practiced an out-of-air situation on a downline coming up from a shipwreck? Just for the hell of it. When? Right. Most... Nobody I've talked to except somebody I've said, hey, how about practicing this with me at 30-foot stage, you know, when we do a deco? But when's the last time somebody has thought about doing that before you went down? And again, yeah. what can prevent some of those items? How to, how to prevent? My biggest fear when I first started diving was I was going to be away from the wreck, couldn't get back to the, to the downline or couldn't yeah. find it. And I did not want to make a free ascent. Because back then, if you could see your hand in front of your face or, you know, three feet, that was good viz. I always carried a hundred foot of line with me. <laughs> so if I had to, I was going to, whatever I'm at, hook it to something. I'll make my way up. That way I've got, I have a, the feeling of a controlled right. ascent. Yep. And I'm not going to wait till I got zero pounds to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's, so maybe, uh, where that buoyancy comes in important. If you're not properly uh, weighted, that makes a, a free ascent a real challenge. Yeah. So sometimes I think being a little scared, I shouldn't say scared. I mean, if you're apprehensive, you need to be doing something to make you not apprehensive. But by the same token, you need to, what happens if? Some of the items, like somebody has a leaking dive mask and 20 minutes later into the dive, they panicked because they got their mask flooded, ad nauseum. You know, when things start to go wrong, the little ones, you need to stop and figure out, okay, I've had three little issues. This is not the day to be down there. 
especially Correct. if you're doing it. I mean, we, we spend so much time at 10 to 20 feet. We let things go that if I'm on a shipwreck or if I'm on the big lake or I'm doing a boat dive, I don't tolerate. Yeah. I don't I don't tolerate a weeping regulator. I in the river in ten feet. Yeah, I yes I do. I have. Not a major one, but you know, I will I will let things at shallow water slide that but I'm not in an enclosed space, I'm not in a fouling area, I'm in sand. And I can basically stand the hell up. But that's the key. How do you prevent yourself from getting panicky? Practice your emergency drills. Yes. And practice with your buddy. Thank you again. Those are all very good points. Well, we are getting to that time of the show. I'd like to thank everybody who's listening. Appreciate everybody who's downloading. Uh, as we're getting to the end of our 11th season. It's hard to believe. Uh, certainly are appreciated. Uh, I guess I'm planning on doing another season because I just had to pay all the bills for hosting. So we'll be doing at least a few more months. Uh, if you are, have the means to support the show, we'd appreciate it. You go to patreon.com. Uh, get there from a link on our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Tap on over the Patreon link and whatever amount. You don't have to stick with one of the amounts we've got on there. You can make it whatever you want. Um, and it's certainly appreciated. If you can't do that, we understand. Uh, not everybody has been able to fare these last uh, eight to nine months out uh, too well. So, you know, get a friend to listen, uh, a little bit of review would certainly help out. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed, Twitter at scuba obsessed. Leave us a message at the show at scuba obsessed.com. You got anything you want to plug Mac before we get on out of here? You can't get to the uh, libraries like you used to, but don't forget they are still available. I know my local one, we have been using ours. Uh, the nice part is there's not a lot of people in there. Yeah. And the availability for books and stuff for there. And at ours, you can actually look it up online, order it, and they'll bring it out to your car for you. Wow. Curbside. Yep. Great services. Excellent. And like like uh, Kevin would always say, yeah, it's nice to buy your stuff from Amazon, but Amazon don't fill up your air tank. Yeah. Support your local live shop. Well, right. And they're going to answer your question about that $144 regulator that they had on there because uh, something you buy that's uh, best case, just a waste of money or worst case uh, leads to an injury. Uh, is not a good thing. Yeah. Well, I'd say we're getting to that time of the show. Are you ready? Sitting down. Okay. Considering it's that time of the year, I thought this would be appropriate. Maybe I'll get this edited. Probably not. It'll probably be next year, but. Remember that it was before Christmas when I did this one. A guy bought his wife a beautiful diamond ring for Christmas. Upon hearing about this extravagant gift, a friend of his said, I thought she won one of those sporty four-wheel drive vehicles. She did, he replied, but I couldn't find uh, one of those fake Jeeps. Subtle, subtle, subtle. Yeah, yeah, that one was that. You think we need another one? Let's give it a shot. Okay. Yeah, this one 
This one may not be any better. Three men die in a car accident on Christmas Eve. Yeah, it's already starting out great. Uh, they all find themselves at the pearly gates waiting to enter heaven. Upon entering, they must present something related to or associated with Christmas. The first man searches his pockets to find some mistletoe, so he's allowed in. The second man presents a cracker, so he's allowed in. The third man pulls out a pair of stockings. Confused at this last gesture, St. Peter's asks, how do these represent Christmas? He answered, well, they're carols. Okay, dokey. Yeah. <laughs> I just wonder if we got in or not. <laughs> they didn't say. It didn't say. I saw that post the other day about if you really want to give a memorial, a, a memorable gift to your wife this Christmas that she'll always remember and talk about, give her a mop. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think I think you've identified that right there. <laughs> I remember kind of a, a shaggy dog story. Uh gosh, my wife and I had just I think we were, were we even married? We, we must have been, but uh, we were very tight on budget. And I asked her what she wanted, and she actually wanted a broom and a dustpan. So that's what we got. And and how we went shopping for gifts for each other is we both went together and said, okay, let's get something. And uh, but yeah, you're you're right. She did talk about it, but that's what that's what she asked for, and that's what we got. So, and I'm and I'm still alive to talk to tell it. <laughs> so until next time go out there and get wet stay safe <laughs>